was killed at 33 years old. They put out one album and a series of singles, and that's what's what's left of this amazing musical tradition. There are real stakes for a lot of these people. These musicians weren't just like doing it for kicks. Hi, I'm Peter Marks. Welcome to Rhythm Nation, a podcast that explores the intersection of activism and music. My hope is that with each episode, you'll come away with a greater appreciation for the political context of music and be inspired to make activism a larger part of your life. We have Josh McPhee on the episode today, who is a designer, artist, archivist, and author of a wonderful book called An Encyclopedia of Political Record Labels. In this episode, we talk about the motivation for the book and discuss Josh's top 10 political record labels from the nearly 800 labels cataloged in his book. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, your work documenting political record labels feels like it's tailor-made for the theme of this podcast, which explores the intersection of activism and music. So I'm, I'm curious, what, what came first for you, an interest in politics or an interest in collecting music? I got involved in, I mean, I, I loved music as a kid. Um, I grew up, my parents listened to Motown, um, amongst other things, uh, and I gravitated towards music subculture at a really young age, first through heavy metal. And then, uh, you know, around 12, 13, I got really involved in punk rock um, and sort of DIY punk and hardcore uh, sort of aspects of punk. And that sort of carried me through high school and that politicized me um, along with the world that I was existing in. I was in high school in the early late eighties, early 1990s when the U S launched the the first Gulf War, and that was sort of a backdrop to a broader politicization. Um, the AIDS crisis was was going on. There was just, you know, a lot happening in the world, as there always is, and punk was a window into learning about that and having a community to sort of process and, and digest that with that just didn't exist uh, in more mainstream society. Got it. Yeah, you wrote in your book that to some extent you saw the limits of punk's impact on the, the political discourse. Can you tell me a little bit about that, those sorts of feelings at one point of being, being a little bit burnt out about music? I mean, at the time, I don't think I fully understood why I was feeling the way I was, but I, I had been involved for, um, you know, four or five years very deeply in, in the scene. I did a zine that was you know, relatively popular. And I spent a lot of time traveling around the country, selling it at shows and, and, and building distribution for it. I had, uh, helped set up a zine distribution, um, project with a couple friends of mine. Um, I helped set up shows. I did, uh, like all of the artwork and that I do now, like a lot of political work with social movements all comes from work I was doing, when I was in high school, which was band flyers, record covers, t-shirt designs, all kind of like applied art or design that had to do with the needs of the community that I was a part of, um, which in a lot of ways is very similar to what, what I do now. Um, so, uh, I think that like, as I got more and more involved and I became more and more interested in the political aspects of sort of do it yourself culture, I started to realize that the 
the sort of self-marginalization that punk had kind of built around itself by the late 80s, early 1990s, um, really limited its ability to have a political impact. Uh, I was working with community organizations that uh, were happy to work with me because of the art and design I was doing, but had little or no interest in this, those sort of cultural aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, um, you know, didn't understand them and, and found them off-putting, which that's fine. I mean, people should act and wear the, the clothes and the, the style that they want. I don't think that that in any way is uh should or can define one's politics but i think that's part of what happened with punk is that it became defined by its aesthetic more than by what it actually meant or was doing got it well i definitely see that style over substance it can plague a lot of other kinds of music as well you know I, i'm someone who's who's pretty into into dance music and yeah you touched on your Books intro, yeah, some of the, some of the stories around yeah, house and techno, for example, that uh, in a lot, a lot of ways we've gotten away from the original intent that drove that music into a more superficial, stylized first version of it. And yeah, that's that's an issue. I I, I know that that can bum me out sometimes. But coming around to, to what inspired you to write this book, it's it sounds like you you sort of changed your music taste to just like really caring about music with with a message. Can you tell me about like what prompted that? Um, after punk, I got really interested in hip hop and started listening to hip hop and going to a lot of, um, hip hop shows. Uh, and I think that in hindsight, I I think I realized that part of the ability to make that shift was because hip hop is still uh, music that was primarily either on vinyl record or live. Um, that although I had cassettes and CDs and ultimately MP3s, those formats were never particularly interesting to me. I grew up and fell in love with the sort of communicative potential of the packaging around the music. Um, when you would get a record with a big gatefold sleeve and it you know, had inner sleeves with lyrics on them and a poster inside and just the, the sheer amount of information that you can package around a record when it's in its vinyl format, um, is, you know, profound, uh, and astounding. And all of that was sort of very quickly lost, uh, in the early nineties, other than with like a, a very small number of kind of niche boutique, kind of punk labels that were still doing kind of lavish, lavish packaging, but for a very, very, very small audience because the industry had basically killed off the vinyl record, um, by the mid 1990s, you know, I, I, I gravitated towards hip hop and continued buying records that way. And then as everything just sort of really became digital, I, I pretty much stopped listening to music because, I realized it just was entirely becoming background noise, which was so at odds with the way that the role it had played in my life up to that point. Um, And then uh, about five years ago, um, I was helping some friends of mine, um, the, the Marxist uh, autonomous Marxist theorists, Sylvia Federici and George Cofensis, who I happen to live down the street from, I was helping them clean out their apartment and Sylvia, who's from Italy and was part of the Wages for Housework movement um, that 
she was part of it here, but it, it developed concurrently in, in Europe and in Italy in particular. Um, she just reached into her closet and pulled out this stack of seven inch records and handed them to me and said, Oh, you might be interested in these. Why don't you take these? <laughs> um, and, and they completely blew my mind. They looked like punk records. Um, there are these records from the late 1960s, early 1970s that had like pictures of people with guns on the cover or giant protests and marches, um, you know, women with their fists in the air. Uh, and then I get home and I put them on and, and it's completely entirely folk music. Um, and to, to the extent that some of the records literally are, Bob Dylan, Buffy St. Marie, Joan Baez songs, slightly tweaked and played and sung with different lyrics. Um, And and that just, there was just no place for me to put that. So I was like, I need to figure out what this is about. And so I started researching kind of political music from the 60s and 70s. And and, um, I don't know if I say this in the introduction of the book, but, but I... I actually had this profound moment of embarrassment when I I realized that it had never crossed my mind that the word folk in folk music literally meant people, folks. (laughs) So like folk music is people's music, which of course is obvious, but given that it was perceived of as the enemy of punk, um, I had never put any thought or time, energy, into folk music at all. I just thought it was hippy dippy stuff for old people. Um, and then it just like about five years ago had my entire world turned upside down. What an awesome happy accident of having your entire like musical world turn upside down as a result of helping your friend clean out their apartment and like getting some records loaded on you. That's, that's awesome. And it just started this sort of like digging project. Um, and uh, really going deep into trying to like follow the, the networks and the trails um, from these records into the world. And then that eventually became the encyclopedia project. What were some of your main digging resources in, in discovering political music from around the world that ends up in this book? I mean, I, I think because I'm not, um, involved deeply in any particular like musical community I didn't and and I think because of my sort of the lessons I feel like I learned through punk is a sort of have thrown purity out the window and um after you know some some digging in in stores uh, around New York City and finding that like the world music quote-unquote sections um were often quite impoverished and the best material were reissues and most reissues are done not because of the context or the content um, of the, the lyrics or the, the sort of political engagement of the music, but because of looking at it from a kind of like ethnomusicology perspective or like the sound um, I was, although not uninterested, it, I was less interested in that. And so I, I turned to the internet and largely have used things like Discogs and eBay to sort of hunt this stuff down. Um, I mean, Discogs has been an amazing resource, not just for finding people that have these records, but just because it functions as this weird hybrid between kind of like 
Amazon and Wikipedia, where it's probably the world's largest living archive of music kind of information. And uh, what I would do is I would find someone who like probably had a record store somewhere, somewhere else in the world. And I would write them kind of like off line, like, I mean, I would email them, but like kind of outside of eBay or, or Discogs and say, Hey, I'm really interested in this kind of music. It looks like you have a bunch of it. If you give me a deal, I'll take a lot of it off your hands. And so I would find someone with like a record store in Copenhagen or Malmo or something that would send me 50 1970s communist uh, prog rock records from Scandinavia for like 75 euros or something that had been sitting collecting dust in the record shop for 50 years. And that's kind of like how I've gone about it. Got it. Got it. So you limited the scope of your book to independent vinyl record labels with an explicit leftist agenda. What were some reasons that you decided to focus on only on vinyl producing labels? You, you mentioned your interest in vinyl artwork as a designer, but what were some of the other reasons that you decided just to focus on vinyl records? Well, when I started researching this, I, I kind of stumbled upon this sort of happy accident uh, in which if you take the major social movements of the second half of the 20th century um, and their sort of like evolution and arc and ebb and flow, and you map that onto the rise and fall of the vinyl record, you get an almost exact pairing. So although the vinyl record is invented in the 1940s by Columbia and RCA, um, and it's 33 and a third and 45 um, RPM formats, uh, it doesn't sort of rise to prominence uh, and become the dominant form in which music is distributed until the late 1950s. And this is the exact moment that the civil rights movement becomes kind of like the dominant political movement in the United States and increasingly kind of looked to from around the world uh, as a sort of touchstone for how to organize um, for liberation. And the movements that were part of the civil rights movement organizations, whether it's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or CORE, the Congress for Racial Equality, um, SCLC, Martin Luther King's group, they all very quickly start using vinyl records as agitprop. Um, and this sort of continues on across the world, whether it's resistance to Franco in Spain or um, fighting against dictatorships in Latin America up through and sort of like is capped by the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and Southern Africa more broadly in which um, 1990 is the year that the cassette and the CD first outsell the vinyl record. And it's also the year that Nelson Mandela is let out of prison. 1994 is the year that um, apartheid uh, is abolished in South Africa and Mandela is elected president and it's also really the, the, the kind of last gasp for vinyl um, in which, yeah, by the mid-1990s, it's been almost entirely choked out of the market because the um, record labels realized that CDs and cassettes were much cheaper to produce and they could sell them for the same price. Um, and so they very quickly sort of force a market shift um, and ice vinyl in order to increase profits. As uh, as vinyl sales continue to pick up again in these increasingly tumultuous 
political times. What do you think that says about the medium? Do you, do you draw any connection to to those events like happening around us in, in recent years? I mean, it's it's complicated. I, I think that like there's probably a lot of pipe pop psychology that could could and does get spewed about why vinyl, the return to vinyl. I mean, I think that there's a bunch of uh, people thinking and talking about a return to analog more broadly. Um, I, I think that our, ours, our eyes and ears are exhausted by a complete overload of access to information. And there, there's a way that the physical object kind of limits what we can consume um, and there's good things about those limits. I think that the objectness of the record is something that a lot of people, um, have a lot of nostalgia about. And that, um, I mean, the majority of vinyl is sold to people that are under 30. So it's not people that grew up with vinyl. So they're really interested in it, I think for a whole different set of reasons. I think that, um, it shows it's an identity marker. Um, it, uh, also if, if one's an audiophile, I mean, this is of course endlessly debated, but I think that, um, the vinyl record is surprisingly an ex- extremely stable, um, media format. You know, you, you keep a f- vinyl record upright, um, and well protected in a hundred years, if you have a, a needle attached to, you know, a cone of paper, you could you could listen to that record. Um, you put your uh, your hard drive full of all of your music um, next to that vinyl record. In a hundred years, it's it's going to be a very expensive drink coaster um, that no one's going to know what to do with. Digital collections actually take a, a quite a fair amount of upkeep in a way that um, vinyl is, is, is sort of very, very stable as long as it's minimally climate controlled. Your comment about the preciousness of vinyl as an object, given that it does cost money to produce these records and it is a scarce quantity when people get a vinyl record, whether it's it's today or, or, or the time period you mentioned between the 50s and the 90s, like there, there was just some intrinsic value to that. And, and keeping that in mind helped me, me understand some of the intentions behind the recordings that you mentioned that were produced by these various labels, including some of the ones that we're going to listen to. So you've put together a list of your top 10 favorite political record labels. And I wanted to go through them with you, hear your take on, on why you think these labels are so special. And we'll hear a little sampling of, of the recordings we go along. So the, the first one I'd love to talk about is this label. It's a U.S. label called Congress for Racial Equality. Can you tell me about that one? Sure. And just, just quickly as a caveat, these are my favorite labels this week. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, if you ask me next week, probably would be a different list. Um, and, and I really, I tried to mix up things that I feel like are um, really important in the history of kind of political sound recordings and, and labels that I just think right now I'm, I'm just grooving on. So um, Congress for Racial Equality is not a record label at all, but a political organization. Um, it, it, was, it was founded in 1942 um, and evolved out of a religious um, organization uh, that was 
sort of oriented towards um, very early civil rights organizing for African-Americans in the South and the United States. When it started, it was primarily a white organization and then evolved and eventually um, became uh, an all-black organization with the sort of rise of black power in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, and, and CORE is probably most well-known for the instigators of the Freedom Rides. So the buses that went down to the South, filled with students, both black and white students um, from the North, um, to help register people to vote. Um, and uh, I, I have a record, actually I have a record right in front of me. Uh, it's a seven-inch record that uh, was put out by CORE um, that the A side is a song called I'm on my way and the B side is we shall overcome. And, and it's, it's very representative of the music that came out of the civil rights movement. Um, most of it is uh, basically like retuned gospel songs. So, um, and, and we'll, we'll probably get more into this as we go through some of the other labels, but um, for political, a lot of political music that's produced by social movements the goal is not necessarily to be sonically innovative. The goal is to actually reach people where they're at because you're trying to mobilize people. And so it makes sense to create music that people recognize and that know how to, they know how to sing along to it. And so using gospel music made so much sense in the context of the civil rights movement in the South because the one organization that was allowed for black people in the South was the church. That's where people met and where people could congregate and organize. And at the heart of the church is gospel music. And so when civil rights organizations started um, using music as a mobilizing tool, they would take these gospel songs and tweak the lyrics. And then everyone already knew how to sing along. And you could sing them at meetings. You could sing, sing them at rallies. You could sing them. Um, at demonstrations, during marches, on sit-ins, you name it. And everyone knew the words and they knew the tunes. Um, and so this is a seven-inch record that's undated. Um, my guess is that it's from 1961, right around the time that the Freedom Rides are launched. Um, the name of the group on the record is called the Freedom Riders, um, which is part of why I think that. Um, and it says uh, explicitly on it, um, proceeds from artist royalties and the producer are being donated to the Congress of Racial Equality, a national organization with affiliated groups working to abolish racial discrimination by direct nonviolent methods. And so I actually think that this record was probably a fundraising device for the Freedom Rides. To go with me, I ask my brother to go with me. And it's representative of what I think is like the, the, the first political music produced on vinyl records, which is these um, politicized gospel tunes. Um, SNCC, uh, parallel group to core, they had their own group called um, Freedom Singers, uh, and they put out a series of records. Um, core, a little bit later, put out a double LP of um, what they called Freedom Jazz, which were... Uh, jazz musicians, particularly like bop musicians, um, who like Max Roach um, and people like that, who were very, very involved in and attached to um, the civil rights movement. Um, 
a lot of the this music um, became quite popular, and these groups, um, which is it's it's most of it's just chorus, it's just choral music, um, a cappella, sometimes with an accompanying piano or guitar, um, sometimes with a small band. Uh, these groups were popular enough that they got picked up by major labels like Mercury Records. Um, uh, and then Core ended up producing two records uh, on a label, a small label called Dauntless, um, that otherwise wasn't political. It was putting out like soul music and gospel music. Um, and then Core in particular is interesting because they start out in the early 60s putting out um, this gospel music. And then in 1972, um, as the civil rights movement has sort of evolved and become the Black Power movement, and sort of part of this sort of larger struggle for black liberation, they put out a funk record called call it dope. Um, kind of like anti-drug, um, record by a funk band called the fourth kingdom from the Bronx. Um, and so they themselves sort of also, um, not just tracked, uh, as an organization, the evolution of the civil rights movement and the black liberation movement, but actually the evolution of the music that was connected to those movements. Um, so they're super interesting, I think. So moving on, next label you have is DICAP from Chile. Can you tell me about that one? Yeah. Uh, DICAP is is one of my favorite labels. It's one of the most interesting um, labels that kind of I – uh, came upon through this project. Um, it's probably most well known, uh, to anyone that's sort of involved or interested in uh, history of political or folk music because it's the record label of Victor Hara. Um, so DICAP, uh, stands for Discoteca del Cantar Popular. Um, you know, the, the record label of popular music, it was started in Chile by a group of young communists in 1968 under the name Jota Jota. Jota was a sort of slang term for young communist. Um, and it was actually started uh, to produce a record by a group called Quilapayun, um, which was part of a, a explosion of groups in Latin America in the mid to late 1960s that went under the name Nueva Cancion or New Song. It was sort of uh, a the equivalent of the folk revival in the United States in Latin America. And they put out um, a record in solidarity with Vietnam called Poor Vietnam uh, in 1968 as a fundraiser so that the group could go play at the Interna International Youth Festival in Bulgaria, which at the time, of course, was part of the Soviet Union and in, in, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Um, the record was so popular, they almost instantly sold out of the thousand copies that they printed um, they realized that there was actually a huge market for this music and they turned it into a, a full on record label, which um, by the, the right wing um, fascist coup in 1973 in Chile had taken over a, a significant. I mean, there's there's debate about whether it's somewhere between five or 10 percent or up to sort of 20, 25 percent of the Chilean music market. Um, and they did it in a completely kind of ethical way. They were really interested in not having an antagonistic relationship to the musicians that they worked with. Um, they doubled the standard royalty rate for musicians in Chile. Um, and then they evolved from just putting out Nueva Cancion to also putting out um, psychedelic rock records, Cuban music, um, like a, a sort of wide array of music uh, that was of interest to young people in Chile. Um, 
uh, just uh, one last, I think, important thing is that with the coup in, in 1973, um, the a lot of the musicians that were part of DICAP and the label itself was a huge supporter of, supporter of Salvador Allende's um, popular unity government, um, which was the popularly elected socialist government in Chile that was overthrown. Uh, and so they came under direct attack and repression um, where their offices were ransacked. Some of the masters were destroyed and they fled and went into exile um, first in France and then to, to a number of other um, countries in Europe. Uh, and, and so their, their operation sort of was uh, scattered, but they came out of that um, by just by um, licensing the music to dozens and dozens of labels all over the world. And music became one of the primary tools that was used to oppose um, the Pinochet uh, government in Chile for the rest of the 1970s. And so um, it's one of the most important labels for understanding the role of music in political opposition. Latinoamericanos se tomaron de la mano, mandaron So next label we have Expression Spontanee from France. Yep. Um, Expression Spontanee, another sort of fascinating project that uh, was also started in 1968, and it is a direct kind of product of the student worker revolt in May of 1968 that basically brought the government of France to its knees for six weeks and was sort of an almost revolution with more than half of the working class going on general strike. Um, There's a small group of people that had been uh, kind of um, played bit parts in the history of chanson music in France, which is sort of a popular kind of folk pop music. that evolved out of the history of, of French music. Um, and a, a couple of those people, um, Jacques Barriac and Dominique Grange, um, they, they pulled together a group of musicians that sang, um, literally sang on the barricades. Um, and they would uh, change lyrics to popular chanson songs and write their own sort of chanson ditties, which could be sung along um, uh during the protests and they put out uh, a couple records during the uprising. Um, that was, you know, for the first four weeks in the four weeks in May and then the first two weeks in June, um, they put out two records by Dominique Grange, which are interesting because they don't say the label name anywhere on them and don't have any, uh, contact information because they were afraid of, uh, police repression. Um, and one of the things I love about these records is that in my mind, they're the first punk records ever produced. Um, they don't sound punk at all, but they're, uh, basically slabs of cardboard that are screen printed and stamped and then hand cut out and glued together. Um, completely sort of DIY productions, um, that, uh, were rushed out, uh, in the sort of heady days of this revolt to get this music into people's hands. Um, and then the, the label very quickly evolved into uh, the next sort of uh, 15 to 20 years, putting out uh, over 80 records fra- of political music from around the world, as well as being really, really interested in uh, finding veins of popular folk music uh, in 
um, sort of minor languages and regions of France that otherwise um, had been kind of like forgotten or steamrolled by the more dominant music traditions in the country. Um, as well as uh, a number of records put out by striking workers uh, and sort of insurgent workers in France and in other parts of the world. And the, the snippet that I uh, that you're going to play is, is from one of those records, um, which is a, a group of Renault workers um, who in the early 1970s create this amazing two-song seven-inch that basically like channels Isaac Hayes uh, through the lens of like angry French working class. Pour tous ceux qui veulent combattre et qui se retrouvent au matin licenciés. So next label we have is Lota Continua from Italy. Yep. And this is one of the record. This is one of the labels that I discovered when Sylvia handed me these records. Um, and Lotta Continua was the largest extra parliamentary and left organization in Italy in the late 1960s um, into the early and mid 1970s. And from 1971 um, until the late 70s, I think even into the early 80s, they had a newspaper which, for a couple years, was daily and then became a weekly and then biweekly newspaper. And um, so they were, uh, this, this political organization that, um, was expressly communist, but far to the left of the Italian communist party, which was still kind of a major player in the Italian political scene. And, um, they were doing sort of direct organizing, trying to get, um, uh, people like women to go on rent strike, uh, utility strikes, um, other kinds of um, supporting factory workers that were on strike. And they would put out records that were basically soundtracks to their political organizing. And these records would get slipped into the newspaper and distributed through the sales of the newspaper, which was the most sort of popular left paper uh, in the country. And because of a quirky law in Italy, um, you know, all of the political views, all of the newspapers that were registered in the country, they had to be available at newsstands. And so at any newsstand in Italy, you could walk up to and buy a copy of Lata Continua um, and not just get all of this kind of like ultra left coverage of what was happening in Italy and the world. But this seven inch record would slide out that had these songs that were about taking over the city or supporting armed struggle in Africa, fighting fascism at home and abroad, etc. Et um, and it's, it's fascinating. So next record label you have is MNW from Sweden. Yeah, MNW originally stood for Music Network, um, and then they sort of translated into Swedish uh, Music Not at Waxholm. Uh, it was started by four friends that were kind of musicians and sound engineers in 1969 in one of their parent in one of their parents' garage. Um, this is another sort of like pre-punk punk story. Um, where uh, they set up this small record label with the explicit kind of uh, goal of kind of decentralizing the music industry uh, in Sweden. And they were kind of at the, the forefront of a musical form uh, that was called Prague, um, which is 
like prog rock uh, as we know it in Anglophone culture, but it's with two G's. So it's P-R-O-G-G. And in Scandinavia, excuse me, in Scandinavia, Prague um, stood, uh, the progressive in Prague stood as much for or more for the content of the music or the way that it was produced than like the, the sonic qualities. Um, so it was a lot less noodly guitar and a lot more actual sort of politicized folk music and kind of more pop rock music. Um, and, uh, they went on to sign like signs, some of the most popular bands in Sweden. So the Hula Bandula band, uh, which is who we're going to listen to, um, had a number one song uh, in 1970 that was put out by MNW and went on to have a number of, um, uh, top 10 hits in Sweden and they were explicitly political. A couple of the members were ardent socialists, um, and very pro label labor. Um, and there were a number of other labels, uh, another, a number of other bands on the label that were, um, explicitly communist. Um, and what's, what I really like about MNW in some ways is less the music and the, their model of production. Um, very quickly, they partnered with another prog label called Science to create a um, Swedish-wide distribution system for um, this kind of politicized and independent music um, called SAM Distribution that eventually partnered with labels in Norway, uh, Finland, and Denmark to have a kind of pan-Scandinavian distribution system. Um, they also, in 1975, set up their own vinyl production um, plant. And so they were not just um, recording and producing and distributing this music, but they were pressing it themselves as well. So it was like an entirely massive DIY system um, in the 1970s before punk had even kind of uh, started. Um, they also helped set up other labels across the country because they weren't interested in being the dominant label for the distribution of music, but for really decentralizing its uh, production. And so there's a whole bunch of other pro-labor um, kind of pro-socialist communist uh, labels called uh, Noxving, Amalthea, Manifest, all set up by MNW. Um, and then they actually, one of the ways they, they became a huge label in the 1980s were eventually bought by Universal um, in the 90s. And part of that was because they quickly started producing and distributing Scandinavian editions of popular new wave records um, in the 80s. So they became the sort of distributor for a lot of the labels like 4AD and Beggar's Banquet, um, Rough Trade that were doing bands like the Smiths and Bauhaus and Joy Division and... Um, Cocteau Twins, they they were the outlet for that. And so they kind of merged this sort of socialist communist ethos into uh, a mechanism of supporting local versions of that, uh, of um, sort of politicized punk and new wave by distributing massively popular international acts. So they're just like sort of as a structure super fast. <laughs> So next label is Taino from Puerto Rico. Can you tell me about that one? Yeah, this is this is a uh, quick. They're actually it's a, it's a uh, 
I don't know if a vanity label is the right word, but um, they put out one record in 1972, um, which is uh, Frank Ferrer's record Puerto Rico 2010. And Frank Ferrer is a you know hugely was a hugely popular and still is um, very popular protest singer in Puerto Rico. Um, the name Tano comes from the indigenous peoples of Puerto Rico, Arawak. It's a it's a, a indigenous name, and um, basically this I just love this record. It's this sort of like, um, kind of like one-two punch of mixing the kind of Nueva Canción, Nueva Trova sound that had evolved in Latin America and in Chile, like we talked about with DICAP, um, also in Cuba, um, and mixing it with salsa and more kind of domestic uh, Puerto Rican dance music. And it's just like this killer salsa funk Nueva Canción record, um, in which he actually covers a number of Nueva Canción kind of standards um songs by daniel vigiletti who's one of the most popular political protest singers in uruguay and other um nueva canción tracks so it's a sort of unique record that that just really um is is a dance floor killer Next label is Movimento from Angola. Yeah, this is a is another one that's a little hard to be short about, but um, uh, it's interesting. It's a it's a small label that put out about a dozen seven inch records sometime in the mid nineteen seventies. None of the records, as far as I can tell, I have about eight of them, and none of them have dates on them. Um, they're highly political um, and. Uh, like expressly in support of uh, the MPLA, which was the the dominant um, insurgent group in Angola that was fighting against Portuguese colonialism. But it looks like they're, they're, they're right from the period of independence. So um, it's unclear whether they were produced before the MPLA fully kicked out the Portuguese in 1975 or just after Um but they, they uh, were a label that released records by David Zay, uh, Urbano de Castro, Artur Nunes. There's three of the most popular political – well, it doesn't matter. Some of the, Three of the most popular um, singers in Angola in the 1970s. Um, and uh, they forged a, a unique uh, and kind of amazing sound mixing um, – indigenous uh musical instruments and sound um with uh portuguese and particularly sort of brazilian um sounds semba and merengue and then also music coming from the congo um to create this amazing stew angolan music um from the 70s is is absolutely um gorgeous and uh stunning um but it's uh Sadly, a, a, a label and a story that that um, ends in tragedy because uh, there's a, a left wing coup attempt in 1977 um, to kind of um, overthrow the Central Committee of the MPLA, which is increasingly becoming kind of hardened and top down and alienated from the larger population. Um, and uh, a lot of the artists that were part of this label were. Um, aligned with and seen as supportive of this 
far left wing of um, of the movement. And uh, Zay Nunez and, and De Castro were all actually assassinated by the government um, in 1977. And then their music was banned for a decade after that. Um, so, I mean, Zay, I think, is probably one of the most um, important musicians to come out of Angola. Uh, and he was, he was killed at 33 years old. He put out one album and a series of singles. Um, and that's what's, what's left um, of this amazing musical tradition. Wow, that's a intense but an inspiring story. I mean, that's talk of the risks of making political music. I mean, that sounds like about as risky as it gets. Yeah, there are real stakes for a lot of these people. These musicians weren't just like doing it for kicks. The next record label we have is Mark's Discs from West Germany. I looked this one up and was pretty blown away by the artwork on this record label. <laughs> this is uh, so. This is this is one. This is a, a, a kind of like um, novelty uh, label, um, if you could call it that. That put out one record, which is actually not a vinyl record. It's a flexi disc, and it's uh, a song called "A Mama Fix" by a group called Cole and the Gang. Um, with coal being a reference to helmet coal and Mark's disc is, is entirely a product of, um, the DKP, which is the West German communist party. Um, and for people that aren't sort of experts in the intricacies of German, um, communism, which I think probably very few people are, the DKP was a quite a stodgy kind of um, traditional communist party that was largely um, under the sway of and funded secretly by the East German uh, communist state. So, so in, in a way, you could say this is a this is a record label of the Stasi, <laughs> um, if you were going to be ungenerous, and that's part of what makes it so strange and amazing because this is a weird pop hip hop rap single that's mocking Helmut Kohl when he becomes Ch- chancellor of Germany. Um, and, uh, and when you'll, you hear the 30 seconds, hopefully you'll get enough to get a sense of like how very absolutely strange this record is. Um, it was recorded under uh, false names by a number of members of uh, the um, the group Flo de Cologne, which is sort of a popular uh, political kraut rec- kraut rock record. Kraut, sorry, a popular political kraut rock band um, from Germany. And, um, uh, you know, and, and this record goes to the extent that the cover quotes Marx as saying, you know, that basically we all need to dance in order to, to smash capitalism. Um, it's a totally great, weird artifact of... Um, Sort of the Cold War in the early 1980s. Hey, Mama Fix, Mama Fernsehen an, der Kappeskopf ist wieder am Labern dran. Ach, geh mich doch weg mit der Politik, Lebensqualitätsgelaber, was? Nee, 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 Mama, nix, nix, das ist passé, das ist jetzt nicht mehr in. That's what a fascinating record. Well, well, thank you so much for going through the, the trouble of ripping this final collection of yours and coming on the show and talking about these incredibly inspiring record labels and the stories behind them. Um, where can people find you and your work, Josh? 
Uh, I can be found uh, on, well, you, I'm on Instagram at, at J McPhee, M-A-C-P-H-E-E. Um, and then uh, I'm part of a artist cooperative called Just Seeds, um, Just Seeds Artist Co-op. And we have a website that's justseeds.org.org. And uh, a lot of my work and the books that I've put out are available there. And then an encyclopedia of political record labels is both available um, on Just Seeds, but it was also put out by a small uh, political um, publishing company called Common Notions. And you should check them out too at commonnotions.org. Um, and, and just real quick, I actually, um, this project, uh, if it isn't obvious already, has become somewhat of an obsession. <laughs> uh, and I've already, since the book came out uh, about a year ago, I've already tracked down about 200 more labels that uh, I didn't find um, by press time. Uh, for the book and some about to put out a bonus tracks uh, zine that has these 200 more labels and then a bunch of corrections to, to things that I've since figured out I, I got wrong in the original book. So this is an ongoing project that I'm still sort of really excited about. Um, I'm also working towards putting out like a big kind of coffee table style book. That's all of the artwork from the records. So uh, kind of, political record covers, uh, book, because some of these, these records are just phenomenal. Um, and then they contain all this additional information, posters and flyers and, um, political tracts and, and all this sort of, um, political organizing material that was shoved into these records as a way to get, uh, the message out further and farther. Well, I, I really appreciate the, the work you're doing, and it's really inspiring for me as someone who's who's looking at how activism and music inspire each other to see the the archivist work you're doing and the storytelling around this stuff. I'm going to link to everything you just mentioned in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Josh. I really appreciate you, you making time for this. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rhythm Nation. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left a review. It helps other people find the podcast and will lead to more great guests appear on this program. See you next time.